we're in a, a series in Genesis, and we're moving through the book of Genesis, and we're taking in what's going on, we're, we're getting in there and we're taking in what's going on and trying to see what's happening at the beginning of, of civilization and these things. But we're also, as we do that, we're just asking the question off to the side, how does this prepare us for Jesus? Under the idea that all of Scripture organizes itself around um, who Jesus is and leads us to who Jesus is, he's coming. And Genesis begins with account, an account of creation, the creation of all that there is, everything that is seen, everything that is unseen, physical, spiritual, material, non-material, heavens and the earth as it's described, and that before all that was brought into being that there was only God, that's all that existed. That's how Genesis begins, in the beginning, God, nothing else. So everything else is apart, apart from God is created and dependent on God for its existence, for its life, for its breath. And that when everything and everyone lives within the relational order, within the, the boundaries and the intentions of creation that the, the good king designed, we have a kingdom in which uh, all relationships are very good. Blessing, joy, and peace is the environment uh, of this kingdom. And we saw that unlike other accounts of the origins of humanity, of the origins of environment, humanity is not some kind of unintended, impersonal accident, some kind of byproduct of natural process that just sort of emerged out of the slime, or humanity is not here uh, out of a deficiency of God or some need in the universe something that God or the gods needed done, but rather we are the image bearers of God and who are expected to express this image via our stewardship and our fellowship, told to go and, to, to go and populate the earth through our own um, creative endeavours and technology and relationships. And we see that God placed these two, two, of the, two representatives of humanity via a marriage ceremony into Eden, where there's a garden, just abundance of provision, unlimited opportunity for humanity. And at the center of this garden, there is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You saw how, how Tim set up those three stages of things. A prohibition was placed between humanity and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to limit, to set a limit on the authority of humanity, a boundary of their reach, that they are to trust God when it comes to what is good for humanity and what hinders humanity. And it's also, and this is like super important that you get this, this is also a means through which that they would see that obedience and active faith in the word and the character of God leads to joy, just the ongoing of order and blessing and relational goodness. Failure, though, has been stated by God as inviting death and provoking wrath. Then into this garden, into this temple paradise, comes someone who rebels against order, who rebels against creation, who is an adversary of God, an adversary of humanity. He originates in heaven, standing outside of earth's natural order. Satan, in the avatar of a beast, a serpent, 
a creature that should have been subdued, should have been under the command and the control of Adam, reverses the design, the order of creation, and subdues Adam and Eve. Through language, he distorts and subverts their trust in God, God's word and character, and entices them to reach for what's out of bounds. And in this moment, relational order, peace, authenticity is plunged into chaos, alienation, and disordered loves that lead to death, relational death, spiritual death, the hiding that we see there. What the Bible calls sin and judgment. As heads of humanity on probation in the garden, Adam and Eve have now brought all of humanity and indeed creation under the curse of sin. And with it, the loss of blessing, with it, the loss of closeness of God. But in what is perhaps one of the most important verses in all of Genesis, and perhaps one of the most, if not the most important verse in all of uh, Scripture, God meets rebellion with grace. That's Genesis 3.15. I should let you know what it is. Eh? He meets rebellion with grace and a promise of restoration. An offspring, a seed of the woman, will one day deliver a fatal blow that will overcome Satan, the serpent, and what he has done. But this will not be without injury to this descendant. We will find its fulfillment eventually in the cross of Jesus, where his death and resurrection will satisfy the wrath of God towards sin on humanity's behalf and establish and offer new life in a new community, in a new kingdom. The ending of the power and the penalty and eventually the presence of sin. And we see all that unfold. Beautiful picture uh, in the book of Revelation. This gracious promise then becomes the organizing theme for the rest of Genesis. Indeed, the organizing theme behind the rest of Scripture in human history is every character and, and, and every story finds their place in relationship to this promise, the great battle, uh, the promised conquering seed of the woman and the resistance and the rebellion of Satan is traced through uh, human history as it's recorded in Scripture. The fall initiates this downward spiral east of Eden. And anything that's moving east is, is always negative. Actually, east is that way. It's always negative. East of Eden, matters go from bad to worse. The chapters that follow, chapter 3, depict the sorry tale of the rapid decline of the human condition, now enslaved to sin. It's an increasing picture of human brutality as Cain, the crop farmer, murders uh, his brothers Abel, the stockman. That is mocked by, uh, as child play, if you like, by, by Lamech, a city builder, mass murderer, collector of wives. Sin spreads and defaces the image of God in humanity, setting itself up in opposition to God damaging and degrading the very good of creation. With Lamech, the biblical authors want you to understand that sin has now become organized, institutionalized into how humanity approaches progression. Revenge and power abuse are now social duties, cultural things. Marriage is also a means to demonstrate power as wives are collected like property rather than a place to replicate the exclusivity and the intimacy of love between a husband and a wife. 
As Christopher Watkins writes, in Lamech we find the origin of all the hate-filled, violent, misogynistic, bombastic, aggressive, xenophobic slogans of our age. By the time we get to Noah, we are seeing wholesale wickedness and decreational impact of sin socially, relationally, spiritually. And it appears that even the boundaries of heaven and earth and the divine order are being corrupted. As the war against the promised seed is taken to another level with evil spiritual beings corrupting the very nature of humanity. And whether this is through um, sexual union or marriage or spiritual possession, Nephilim depict a monstrous rebellion and defiance of God's good design and boundaries and a corruption of the image of God that is beyond repair. Instead of the earth being filled with representatives of God, the earth is filled with the consequences of sin and those who bear his image of rebellion. And it seems like the promise of God that a descendant of the woman, a true image bearer of God would fatally crush this serpent's head and the rebellion of it is diminishing Day by the day. And this is, this is like 2,000 years of history uh, that we've just swept through. But the writer wants you to gra- grab the gravity of the impact of what sin has done. But then just like that, the sovereignty of God that sets the limits and the boundaries comes back into view as he chooses Noah, an act of divine grace and mercy through which God's promise is preserved in Noah's family line. The reach and the chaos of sin is impeded through the judgment that depicts the cleansing of the earth, leading to a a recreation in which Noah and his sons Shem, Ham and Japheth are recommissioned, if you like, as, as new heads of humanity to fill the earth in God's image, as his image bearers, once again with the promise of God to preserve humanity. And while there are echoes of the commands of Adam, while this is almost an echo of the garden scene, sin has darkened the scene. And even righteous, blameless Noah, who walked with God while he built an ark, who trusted God with faithful obedience while all around him was disorder, who built an altar to the Lord and made sacrifices after the flood and and received the covenant, who we thought, you know, Could this dude be the guy? Could he be the snake crusher? Is soon himself embroiled in sin of rebellion as too much strong drink takes us from a story of salvation to a scene of drunken stupor, sexual immodesty, family shame, and a curse on Canaan. That's a real mood killer. So we slide into this. And we are left with the realization that sin is not something to work off. That humanity, even in its best day, cannot work off sin. And only the intervention of a creational God can address the decreational disease of sin in the human heart. Noah and his family continue to wait for the descendant who will be this intervention of God, this promise of God. And the story once again organizes itself around tracing out the progression of this promise, a promise of descendants from the woman and God's faithfulness in preserving it and Satan's attempts in frustrating it. 
As we roll into chapter 10, we are given an overview of how the earth is repopulated from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, in what is called the Table of Nations. The Table of Nations is another uh, genealogy account, but unlike the ones that we find in chapter 5, which give us this kind of chronological development of um, the primordial families up to Noah, this genealogy focuses on geography, the territorial spread of the clans, their nations and their languages across the earth, linking the story of the promise of Genesis 3.15 through Noah and to the call of Abraham. In an interesting but intentional twist, the order of these sons is reversed in the telling of it, leaving Shem to last because it will be Shem who bookends the event of Babel uh, through, through which the story continue, continues, linking the story through to Abraham, uh, through the line of Shem and Eber and, Pe- and Peleg. We see how the sons of Japheth through Gomer and Jabin migrate uh, and inhabit the coastlands, in lands that are situ- situated around the Aegean and Black Sea, across to the vicinity of the Caspian Sea, and even stretching up into Europe and as far around west as Tarshish, each with their own language, their own clans, and their own nations. We see the sons of Ham through Cush and Egypt and Put and Canaan, and their descendants dispersing out through northern Africa and Arabia, in areas south of the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea, through the southern side of the Persian Gulf, by their clans, by their languages, their lands, and their nations. The sons of Ham have in their composition the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Canaanites, a collection of Israel's most bitter and influential neighbours. Special special attention is given to Nimrod, whose name means we shall rebel. And he achieves his name and his ascendancy through naked aggression. He is not uh, characterized by spreading and filling, but by conquering and consolidating. He is the architect of menacing Babylonia and Nineveh. And he is remembered for two things that the world admires, that the world pursues and desires and reaches for, personal power and political power. His name becomes proverbial. Even before the Lord, Nimrod is acknowledged as a king who excels in aggression and force rather than protection and shepherding. Nevertheless, the descendants of Ham still live under the sovereignty of God and are included because they too will be the objects of his plan and his promise to bless the nations, to preserve a descendant who will liberate them from their desire to dominate through aggression. The sons of Shem are recognized last in this genealogy, even though in every other mention of the sons of Noah, it's, it's, it's Japheth first, Uh, Sorry, Shem first and Japheth last. It is an intentional device by the author because it will be through Shem's descendants that the story of the promised snake crusher, uh, rebellion overcomer, will be delivered. 
it will be down through the elect branch of Shem's descendants that God will move with grace and call yet another individual, Abram, to be the bearer of his character and to be the promoter and bearer of blessing and promise to all of these other nations. So it will be the untold story of Shem in chapter 10 that is picked up on the other side of Babel, focusing on how the election of Pegleg, Peleg, Pegleg, Peleg, <laughs> whose name means divided, leads us to Abraham and the dropping off of the non-elect brother. The descendants of Shem are, des- are dispersed throughout Arabia and Southeast Asia to the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Chapter 10 depicts the descendants of Noah's sons multiplying under God's blessing, but as we will see, scattered uh, with many languages under God's wrath, under God's judgment. It is the tension of the story of grace and judgment under the sovereignty of God that pulse pushes all the way through this story. We read in Genesis 30, in Deuteronomy 32, 8, then we read that this dispersion, that it was the most high that gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. This is all under the sovereignty of God. Here is a picture of international growth, of national diversity, that all traces its way back to Noah. Here we see the faithfulness of God and his covenanted blessing to Noah being confirmed. In this picture we see the dispersion of people depicted by 70 Names, the names of 70 people or people groups. And it's a numerically symbolic number. It's not an all-inclusive number that grabs every single person uh, that that was in this migration. Rather, the author has selectively chosen with theological intent. The number 70 uh, in biblical writing always depicts completeness, the sovereignty of God over the story, both his blessing and his judgment. The ongoing tension of grace and rebellion, uh, this spreading this spreading out over the whole of the earth has not come through obedience, but rather through God's judgment. And as we turn the page into chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel an observant listener, an observant reader, would have picked up on the fact that we are told that the population of the earth, as it spreads and migrates, east from the ark has one language, the same words, not diverse languages, as depicted back in chapter 10. Well, this is what we call a flashback moment. Most commentators attribute it to the clue in Shem's descendants of Peleg, whose name means division. This is a flashback to this moment. It's around this time and around something wicked happened in a place called the land of Shinar, which is ancient Babylon, a project of Nimrod, who is characterized by aggressive consolidation and power of his name rather than generous spreading of the culture of God's name. It is here uh, that the autonomous spirit of rebellion and pride-fueled self-interest that led to the fall in the Garden of Eden again reaches a climax as 
humanity kind of conscious of new abilities and new technologies prepares to glorify and fortify their own name rather than glorify and spread the name of God. Their pride-filled sin is found in three soundbites, three slogans of the day, declarations of will, a parody uh, of divine speech in the Garden of Eden of come, let us. They disobey the divine command to fill the earth by their intention not to be scattered over the whole earth, by building a city, a place of insulated consolidation where worship and civic life can be facilitated. There is this echo of resolve to create uh, a place of worship that mimics the divine language of creation with the phrase, come, let us uh, bake bricks. Now it hurts me a lot to say this, but this new technology of the brick is not an improvement. It's not an improvement on, the, on stone. It's less durable. The author is actually pointing out the foolishness, the fragility, the temporiness of their vision. It's Moses actually mocking them. Their ambitions and their visions, though, are not for the good of humanity's flourishing under God's design, but rather are in operation, uh, in opposition and doubt of God's goodness. They intend to satisfy their material and spiritual aspirations independent of God. They intend to be their own saviors, build their own place of worship. And so they scheme to make a name for themselves. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. The prerogative of making a name belongs to God alone. In creation, we see God systematically naming all that there is. Humanity is created in God's image and derives his name, dignity and status and rule on the earth from that position. To make a name for yourself is to assert fierce independence and self-made mastery of one's soul and one's life. The last people who were described by their own name were the Nephilim. Now the, the same base desire and drive drives the tower builders. Immortality through a name, through their own recreation. Not much has changed. We seek this, we reach for this. We often like to make a name out of our workplace, out of our pulpit, out of our sporting achievements, seeking a name for ourselves. It's the spirit of Babel. It is to disregard the need and the promise of a descendant who can restore what has been lost with the fall. It is to choose rebellion over reconciliation. Finally, in their hubris, in their pride, they set out to even transgress the boundaries of heaven and earth established in creation. Come, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens. Just as Adam and Eve transgressed the boundaries and the limits of wisdom by seeking and taking a forbidden fruit, the sons of man transgressed the boundaries of marriage by seeking and taking what they shouldn't have. So too now the tower builders seek to take heaven and transgress the dwelling place of God, reducing God to a localized God who practices, who participates in their plans, who is controlled by their ideas and their designs. Not a universal God who, who determines... Uh, all, all people, all, all places, is sovereign over all things 
and sets the limits and the boundaries of life. Such an idea is viewed by the divine counsel in verse 6 is so outrageous that no idea that they will come up with is now off limits. There's no ceiling to the imagination of what is permissible for humanity. Nothing is going to be considered impossible and off limits. The Tower of Babel, as this project has become known, depicts a unified people in collective and titanic rebellion against God. And it's titanic as this group of people believe their building project to be, there is a sense of irony and humour in the story now. As Moses again implores a kind of a mocking tone, as their construction that is meant to be the gateway to the gods in, in Babylonian, Babel means gateway to the gods, that a centre of civilization. It is actually so insignificant, so small, that God and the divine council must leave heaven and stoop down to see this construction. Of course, God doesn't need to reposition himself to see what humanity is up to. But the author is keen to make the point that even the grandest aspirations and endeavors of pride and assault on God are nothing more than a tiny spectacle that he has to strain himself to come and see. God is not threatened by human achievement. In fact, God encourages it. But when that advancement obscures humanity's relationship with God and their need of his promised rescue, then he's saddened, he is concerned, he is grieved at what a, a Babylonian type of heart is doing to humanity, will continue to do to humanity. And once again, divine grace will be exercised by divine judgment to hinder and, and impact the influence of this kind of approach to community, to life. The confusing of the languages of the Tower of Babel is less catastrophic way of limiting sin's reach. In mercy, God halts and frustrates their progress to limit the damage and the extent that human beings will have in hardening their own hearts against what God has promised, of obscuring themselves and, and, and sectioning themselves off from God's word and his character and what he has promised for humanity. God does not wipe out the, rebel, the rebels, but confuses their capacity to communicate and organize in rebellion. And in doing so, initiates the spreading out described in Genesis 10. It's an all too familiar scene by now and we wonder how can it be undone? The disorder, the dysfunction that sin has pl plagued upon the human heart made for the tasks of stewardship and fellowship in the image of God. We have read story after story of disorder, destruction and death as this Babylonian heart of humanity seeks after a name that is not its, not theirs, and, and, and pursues an autonomy that is just an illusion. Adam, Cain, Lamech, the sons of God, now the nomadic tower builders that settle in the land of Shinar, each in their own way try to cross the boundaries that God established for human well-being and blessing under this impulse of sin. Uh, 
and we wonder, is there any hope for fallen humanity? Can God really deliver on his promise of salvation through the seed of a woman when the means of that promise is constantly, consistently prone to turning inward, turning into itself rather than turning outward and upward? As the people scatter under the judgment, but multiply in accordance with God's blessing and promise, we ask the question, what now? From the loose thread of the descendant of Shem that was left unexplored, the line of Peleg, by tracing the line of Shem through his legitimate heirs, we arrive at Abram, who becomes God's mean of blessing for, for these scattered tribes and nations. We see the sovereignty of God working graciously within human rebellion. God's gracious presence in the midst of prideful humanity. In the context of the Lord scattering rebellious humanity over the face of the earth, the Lord preserves the seed and the promise to which he has committed himself. The call of Abraham, which Lyson will get into uh, next week, rekindles the hope of Genesis 3.15, of a promised descendant of the woman who would destroy the serpent's work. And although before the flood tyrants transgressed the boundaries of marriage and after the flood humanity collectively sought to transgress the boundaries of separating heaven and earth and make a name devoid of God, God's promise cannot be stopped. The program to save humanity cannot be stopped. And in Abraham, we are told that a new community is being established and built. Through Abraham, God will bless all the families of the earth. Through Abraham, the reversal of Babel can begin. And the story of salvation that leads to the arrival of Christ and his church is underway. The need of a saviour has been set in the failed foundations and aspirations of crumbling bricks. And the only thing that we find at the end of this story is need. All our attempts to build a name for ourselves, to build our own salvation, are just merely bricks that crush into sand and monuments that enslave. And we will find in time that only Jesus ascends to heaven on behalf of humanity to recreate relationship with God. Only the breaking into the human story by a creational God can the, can the, um, can the recreational or the decreational story of sin be crushed and overthrown. But not by making a name for himself. Jesus will set aside his name. Lowering himself down as the true head of humanity. Jesus will not build in pride, but will serve in humility. He will not take life, but he will give his own through the ascending of a hill and the lifting up on a cross. And as we close out today, we're going to gather around these tables with restored gratitude in our hearts. Hearts that once built a name for themselves out of Babylonian pride, if you like, but have been remade, made new, 
something new. Now new image bearers, new conveyors of God's character and goodness. And we can only give thanks for the goodness of God who can push a promise through centuries and centuries of human rebellion to make it come true and good in a way that doesn't crush us but lifts us up back to and restores us back into this community.